Welcome to the End of the Innocence, the JFK Assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In last week's episode, we looked at how Lee Harvey Oswald left Dealey Plaza after the assassination. The Warren Commission and Oswald himself said he left Dealey Plaza at 12.35 p.m. after catching City Bus 12.13, and when the bus got stuck in traffic, he got off and caught a cab to his rooming house, arriving at about 1.03 p.m. We also looked at witnesses that say he left Dealey Plaza in a Nash Rambler station wagon. Around five minutes after the assassination, numerous witnesses, including Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig, say they saw Oswald running down the grassy knoll from the direction of the Texas School Book Depository Building. A light green Rambler station wagon was coming slowly west on Elm Street. The driver of the station wagon was a husky-looking Latin with Italian wavy hair wearing a tan windbreaker-type jacket. He was looking up at the man running toward him. He pulled over to the north curb and picked up the man coming down the hill. Other witnesses on the know made similar statements to the Oswald lookalike running across the grass to get into the light green Rambler Nash station wagon, further adding truth to what Officer Craig observed. What is of interest is that many people who saw the man on the grass that got into the Rambler wagon claim that this person was Lee Oswald or an Oswald lookalike. The Warren Commission didn't pursue this lead. But how could Oswald be in two places at once? Seems that happened a lot in the weeks leading up to the assassination. While it is documented that Lee Harvey Oswald was at work, a man that was passing himself off as Oswald was showing up all over town, many times making a spectacle of himself. It happened at a car lot, a gun range a couple of times, and at the Hobbs family restaurant. Each instance, the man made sure to tell others around him that his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. It seemed the man, whoever he was, wanted to make a lasting impression at each of these places. Again, all when the Lee Harvey Oswald we know was at work, verified by his time card and his co-workers. The most remarkable of these stories of the two Oswalds in Dallas came from Albert Jackson, who said he saw both Oswalds on a city bus three days before the assassination. He was talking to one guy who told him his name was Lee. They spoke for several blocks and the man told him he had a wife and two kids, which we know the real Lee Harvey Oswald did. Mr. Jackson said the man then got off the bus, and then at the very next bus stop, a man got on that looked identical to the man he was just talking to. He said the man had on different clothes than the Lee character. Mr. Jackson would ask the man if he had a twin brother, because there was someone that was just on the bus that looked identical to him. We think this was the real Lee Harvey Oswald, because he told Mr. Jackson that he did indeed have an older brother, and his name was Robert. Who was this man impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald? And maybe the more important question is why? If you still are questioning whether there were two Oswalds in Dallas leading up to the assassination, then wait till you hear the story of Ralph Leon Yates. On November 20th, shortly before the Ralph Yates encounter, multiple witnesses told the FBI that they saw Oswald at the Dobbs House restaurant about a mile north of the Beckley Street entrance to the Thornton Expressway, where Yates would soon give a ride to a gentleman that looked identical to Lee Harvey Oswald. At the Dobbs House restaurant, this man claiming to be Lee Oswald acted in a publicly rude and obnoxious manner. According to waitress Mary Dowling, J.D. Tippett was also seated in the restaurant at the time of this incident. She had known Tippett for many years. The point of this charade was probably to bring Lee Oswald to J.D. Tippett's awareness so that he would recognize him for their fateful meeting two days later. During both the Dobbs House appearance and the Yates episode, the real Lee Harvey Oswald was filling orders at the book depository, verified by his time card and his co-workers. The assassination of President Kennedy continued to suck innocent people into its whirlwind. One was a man who was kind enough to pick up a hitchhiker in Dallas. He was then caught up in darkness for the rest of his life. 
Ralph Leon Yates was a refrigeration mechanic for the Texas Butcher Supply Company in Dallas, making his rounds to meet outlets on Wednesday, November 20, 1963, just two days before the assassination. At 10.30 a.m., Ralph Yates was driving on R.L. Thornton Expressway. He noticed a man hitchhiking in the Oak Cliff area near the Beckley Avenue entrance to the expressway. Yates stopped to pick up the man. When the hitchhiker got into Yates' pickup truck, he was carrying what Yates described later in a statement to the FBI as, quote, a package wrapped in brown wrapping paper about four feet to four and a half feet long, end quote. Yates told the man he could put the package in the back of his pickup. The man said the package had curtain rods in it and he would rather carry it with him in the cab of the truck. Yates mentioned to the man that people were getting excited about the president's upcoming visit. He had broached a subject the man was eager to talk about. The man had a remarkable sense, as seen later, of what would become the government's case against Lee Harvey Oswald. The man also looked so much like Oswald that he was in effect his double, or was he actually Oswald? We know at the time the real Lee Harvey Oswald was working in the Texas School Book Depository, verified by his time card and his co-workers. As cited by the FBI, Ralph Yates recalled the hitchhiker's comments. Quote, Yates stated the man then asked Yates if he thought a person could assassinate the president. Yates replied that he guessed such a thing could be possible. The man then asked Yates if it could be done from the top of a building or out a window high up, and Yates said he guessed it was possible if one had a good rifle with a scope on it and was a good shot. Yates said about this time the man pulled out a picture which showed a man with a rifle and asked Yates if he thought the president could be killed with a gun like that. Yates said he was driving and did not see the picture for more than a couple of seconds, but said it was one of the ones we would become to know as the backyard photos after police arrested Lee Harvey Oswald on suspicion of assassinating President Kennedy, they searched the home of Ruth Payne, where Marina and the kids were living. Lee had some of his personal belongings stored in Miss Payne's garage. While searching through his stuff, the Dallas police found a picture of Oswald standing in his backyard. In one hand, he held a rifle, in the other, copies of two communist newspapers, The Militant and The Worker. His wife, Marina, said she had taken the photo in the spring of 1963. The photo was considered highly incriminating because the rifle he was holding appeared to be the one the Warren Commission said was used to assassinate President Kennedy. The photo was made public in late February 1964, simultaneously appearing on the cover of Life magazine and on the front page of the Detroit Free Press. This convicted Lee Harvey Oswald in the minds of the American public for a short time until other evidence started coming to light. So how did this Oswald impersonator have a copy of the backyard photos before they were even discovered? Back to Ralph Yates. Yates said after showing him the photo, the man then asked if he knew the president's route for the parade in Dallas. Yates replied he did not know the route, but that it had been in the paper. He said the man then said that he misunderstood him, and he actually thought he asked Yates if he thought that the president would change his route. Yates said he replied that he doubted it, unless they might for safety reasons. The hitchhiker asked to be led off along Houston Street. Yates dropped him off at Elm and Houston, the stoplight by the Texas School Book Depository. He last saw the man carrying his package of curtain rods across Elm Street, perhaps into the book depository. When Ralph Yates returned to his workplace at the Texas Butcher Supply Company, he told his co-worker, Dempsey Jones, about this strange conversation with the man he picked up in the Oak Cliff area and dropped off at Elm in Houston, who was carrying the package. Dempsey Jones thereby became a supporting witness to Yates' account. He confirmed in an FBI interview that it was before President Kennedy was assassinated that Yates described picking up the hitchhiker. Quote, who discussed the fact with him that one could be in a building and shoot the president as the president passed by, end quote. 
After Yates saw the picture in the media of Lee Harvey Oswald, he said the man he gave the ride to was identical with Oswald. However, the FBI was not happy with the statement Ralph Leon Yates volunteered to them on November 22, 1963. And Yates also would repeat the same statement per the FBI's request on December 10th, and repeated it yet again at their further request on January 3rd and 4th, 1964. Yates would then pass an FBI polygraph examination with questions concerning his statement. Although Yates' statement seemed to be a thorough incrimination of now-dead Oswald, once again, as in other Oswald appearances, it proved too much for the government's case, even placing that case in jeopardy. As the FBI would make clear, the witness wasn't wanted. They kept recalling him only in order to discredit his story. What was so unacceptable about Ralph Yates' testimony? In terms of the hitchhiker's looks, itinerary, and comments, he was either Lee Harvey Oswald or a well-informed double. We know the real Lee Harvey Oswald was at work during this time, once again, verified by his time card and his co-workers, including his boss. The Beckley Avenue entrance to the Thornton Expressway was on the same street as Oswald's rooming house, located at 1026 North Beckley. The man looking like Oswald had hitched a ride from the vicinity of Oswald's rooming house to the location of Oswald's workplace, the Texas School Book Depository. The man's comments were, like Oswald's, behavior in the series of self-incriminating incidents we'd already seen. An obvious attempt to draw attention to himself as the potential presidential assassin. Most significant in this instance was the package in brown wrapping paper that the man insisted on keeping in the cab with him, which he said contained curtain rods. The package of curtain rods carried by Yates' hitchhiker corresponds with Oswald's notorious cover story in the Warren Report for sneaking his rifle into the book depository. As the Warren Report describes this incident, it was on Thursday, November 21st that Lee Oswald asked his co-worker, Buell Wesley Frazier, if he could ride home with him that afternoon. Frazier lived in Irving, half a block from Ruth Payne's house where Oswald's wife Marina and their two daughters were then staying. Frazier asked Oswald why he wanted to ride with him on Thursday rather than Friday, when Lee normally went to the Paynes household to stay with his family over the weekend. Lee's answer reportedly was, quote, I'm going home to get some curtain rods to put in my apartment, end quote. According to Frazier and his sister, Lenny Mae Randall, the next morning Oswald brought a brown paper package about two feet long with him when he rode in Frazier's car back to the book depository for work. Frazier told the Warren Commission that when he asked Oswald what was in the package, he replied, quote, curtain rods, end quote. Despite the fact that the package Frazier and Randall claimed they saw was too small to hold even a rifle that was broken down, and although no one else saw Oswald with any package at all that morning, the Warren Commission concluded that Oswald must have used such a ruse to smuggle his rifle from Ruth Payne's garage into the depository building. In the Warren Report, the curtain rod story is the critical lie that supposedly enabled Oswald to carry secretly the weapon that he used to murder the president. What then are we to make of Ralph Yates' Oswald-like hitchhiker who prophetically acted out the curtain rod story two days before Lee Oswald reportedly reenacted it in his ride with Buell Wesley Frazier to the Texas School Book Depository on the morning of the assassination, November 22, 1963? There had been no second curtain rod slash rifle delivered by Oswald to the depository. The first, as done by the Oswald Ralph Yates picked up, could have served the Warren Report quite well. Oswald could have been portrayed as smuggling the rifle into the depository on Wednesday, then hiding it on the sixth floor of the building until he used it to shoot the president on Friday. In that version of the story, Yates could have been a valuable witness for the government against an already dead, media-convicted assassin. 
However, just as there was once again a problem of too many Oswalds, with one working his regular hours in the book depository, while the other was hitchhiking with Ralph Leon Yates, so too was there a problem of too many curtain rod deliveries to account for one rifle being smuggled into the building. The trail of duplicating curtain rod stories led not to a lone assassin, but to an intelligence operation tripping all over itself while working overtime to scapegoat Oswald. Ralph Yates was a stubborn witness to what turned out to be unwanted evidence. On his second trip to the Dallas FBI office on December 10, 1963, he repeated and signed his statement about picking up the hitchhiker with the curtain rods. From his first contact with the FBI, Yates, who had pointed out that he was married with five children, said he, quote, would appreciate not receiving any type of publicity from the fact that he was furnishing them with this information, end quote. About that concern, he need not have worried. The FBI would make certain his testimony to another Oswald with a second curtain rod story would be buried from public view forever. On January 2, 1964, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director himself, sent a teletype marked urgent to Dallas Special Agent in Charge J. Gordon Shankling on Ralph Leon Yates. Yes, Ralph Leon Yates was so important that the FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was now involved. Hoover noted that a previous FBI investigation into whether Yates may have been at his company at the same time he said he picked up the Oswald Lock hitchhiker provided insufficient evidence. Hoover therefore ordered the Dallas FBI office to re-interview Yates with the polygraph the instrument more commonly known as a lie detector. On January 4th, in another urgent teletype, Shanklin reported back to Hoover on Yates's polygraph examination that day. Results of the test were inconclusive as Yates responded to neither relevant or control-type questions. Because his lie detector test was inconclusive, Yates had still not been discredited, but there was more to come. During his final January 4th, 1964 trip to the FBI office, Ralph Yates was accompanied by his wife, Dorothy. He had asked her to come with him. In an interview 42 years later, she told me what happened next to her husband. After he completed his lie detector test, she said, the FBI told him he needed to go immediately to Woodlawn Hospital, the Dallas Hospital for the Mentally Ill. He drove there with Dorothy. He was admitted that evening as a psychiatric patient. From that point on, he spent the remaining 11 years of his life as a patient in and out of mental health hospitals. A crucial transition in the psychic health of Ralph Yates seems to have occurred at the FBI office on January 4, 1964. Something the FBI said after Ralph's polygraph test puzzled and disturbed Dorothy. Dorothy states, quote, They told me that he was telling the truth, according to the polygraph machine, but that basically he had convinced himself that he was telling the truth. So that's how it came out. He strongly believed it, so it came out that way, end quote. According to what the FBI told Dorothy Yates, the data that registered on the polygraph machine, as then read in the normal way by the polygraph examiner, showed that Ralph Leon Yates was telling the truth. His tests officially recorded as inconclusive, meaning the examiner wasn't sure if Yates was telling the truth, only because J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI had decided what the truth had to be for Yates. The FBI defined truth was that Yates had not picked up the Oswald-like hitchhiker with the curtain rods, because for the FBI there could be no such hitchhiker. Therefore, Ralph Leon Yates, by being so definitive as shown in his polygraph chart, and knowing that he did precisely that, picked up a non-existent hitchhiker, could only have lost touch with reality. What for any other polygraph person would serve as proof of truth-telling was, in this case of Yates, proof only as an illusionary divorce from reality. 
The wrenching but undeniable truth for Yates, that he helped a man he thought was the president's assassin deliver what could have been his weapon to the book depository, was what compelled him to contact the FBI in the first place. Now he was being told that his experience was nothing but an illusion. The FBI said so. Because of Yates' unwavering polygraph conviction to the contrary, that he knew what really happened, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI knew what they had to do. They told him to report at once to a psychiatric hospital. Exactly what happened to Ralph Yates in the following days as a patient at Woodlawn Hospital, Dorothy Yates did not witness and does not know. She does know that early one morning, about a week later, Ralph broke out of Woodlawn. At 4 a.m., she opened the front door of their house to find Ralph standing barefoot on the steps in his white hospital clothes. Snow was swirling all around him. Ralph told Dorothy he had escaped from the mental institution. He said he tied sheets together and climbed down from a window. He had then stolen a car and driven home. Ralph was tormented by fear in a way Dorothy would see repeated for years. He told his wife someone was trying to kill them and their children because of what he knew about Oswald. She quickly bundled up their five sleepy children, the oldest of whom was six. Ralph drove his family away from their house in a stolen car. Within a few hours, Dorothy was more alarmed by her husband's frantic efforts to avoid the murder at every turn than she was by any unidentified killers. She returned the car and reported his whereabouts to the Woodlawn Hospital authorities. Ralph was picked up and returned to Woodlawn. He was soon transferred to Terrell State Hospital, a psychiatric facility about 30 miles east of Dallas, where he lived for eight years. He was then transferred to the Veterans Hospital in Waco for a year and a half, and finally to Rush State Hospital for the final year and a half of his life. While patient at all three hospitals, he spent intermittent periods of from one to three months at home with his wife and children. He was never able to work again. In the course of Ralph's psychiatric treatment, Dorothy said that he was giving drugs to the point where they made him walk around like a zombie. He learned to resist the process, Ralph fake swallowing the pills. More difficult to avoid were the shock treatments. He received over 40 of them. The impact of the shock treatments on his long-range memory was, his wife said, quote, evidently nothing because he didn't forget what he was there for, end quote. His encounter with the hitchhiker he had dropped off at Elm in Houston. Ralph told Dorothy, quote, I don't know if they're trying to make me forget what happened or what because I'm always going to say those things happened because they did, end quote. To the end of his life, Ralph held on to the truth of his experience with the hitchhiker carrying the curtain rods. He never backed down, Dorothy said. Ralph died at Rush State Hospital on September 3, 1975 from congestive heart failure. He was 39 years old. He left behind a wife and five children. Over three decades later, Dorothy continued to ponder her husband's stubborn adherence to the strange story that in effect made him a prisoner in mental hospitals, took him away from a family he loved, and impoverished all of them. He was haunted by an experience he could not forget, for which he then suffered for the rest of his life because of his unwillingness to recant it. This consumed Ralph. His thinking didn't go beyond that afterwards. This just totally destroyed his life. Ralph blamed himself for Kennedy's assassination. He said, I was the reason the president got killed. Ralph would go on to say, if he had shut up, his life wouldn't have been so bad. Everybody thought he was crazy, so he just became crazy, end quote. Only the FBI knew why Ralph Yates needed to be taken seriously. Not even Yates himself, who had no sense of an Oswald double, understood the significance of what he felt compelled to say for the rest of his life. 
Only the Federal Bureau of Investigations recognized the importance of his testimony with the threat it posed to the government's case against Oswald. If evidence surfaced of the Oswald-like hitchhiker who delivered his curtain rods to the depository two days before the assassination, it would have preempted and brought into question the government-endorsed curtain rod story as given by Buell Wesley Frazier on the morning of the assassination. Thanks to the bundling redundancy of cover stories, the plot to kill the president was again in danger of exposure. There were too many Oswalds in view, with too many smuggled rifles, retelling a familiar story to too many witnesses. At least one curtain rod story and the disposal witness who heard it had to go. The obvious person to be eliminated was the hapless Ralph Yates. His stubborn and insistence on what he knew he had seen and heard, the man he had given a ride, had to be squelched. Ralph Yates then went through 11 years of hell, yet he could not forget and would not stop speaking about it. What he witnessed when he picked up a man he thought was Lee Harvey Oswald. Without ever understanding the full meaning of the experience he refused to renounce, Ralph Leon Yates was a witness to the unspeakable. When I first read and studied the story of the FBI forcibly committing Yates, I could not understand why. Yates was providing information that was consistent with Oswald wanting to kill Kennedy and potentially possessing a rifle to do it. How was this problematic to the Warren Report? Well, it's problematic because there is already an official story for how Oswald got the rifle into the building, which incidentally also used curtain rods in a brown paper bag as the concealment method for sneaking the rifle in. The official story is the story of Frazier giving Oswald a ride to work on Friday morning, not the story of Yates dropping off a hitchhiker on Wednesday morning. We know that Oswald was working his regular hours at the depository on Wednesday when Yates says he picked up the hitchhiker, so Yates' hitchhiker cannot be the real Lee Harvey Oswald. This story sounds crazy, but the facts of Yates' four interviews with the FBI and his subsequent involuntary commitment to a mental health facility are not disputed. There are multiple FBI documents discussing the interviews with Yates. The FBI also checked Yates' whereabouts on Wednesday morning at 10.30 a.m., and sure enough, Yates was out on a service call, which corroborates his story. Ralph Yates is where the analysis of the case really starts to diverge between conspiracy researchers and lone gunman researchers. For people who are suspicious of Oswald acting alone, the Yates story is a game changer. The feds committed this man to a mental institution without due process, all because he told what was apparently an inconvenient truth. And what was his truth that got him in trouble? Telling the FBI that he picked up an Oswald lookalike who was obviously impersonating Oswald, giving his foreknowledge of Oswald's place of work and curtain rods in a paper sack? Yates relayed his encounter with the hitchhiker to his co-worker Dempsey before the assassination on that Wednesday. How could Yates have possibly known to make that up? For one report defenders, the Yates episode is an interesting coincidence that is a red herring. Additionally, there is a question of if there was a conspiracy plot and the hitchhiker was supposed to be an Oswald lookalike, why would the conspiracy plotters risk Yates going to the authorities about the plot, which could then lead to the plot being stopped? I don't see what Yates has to gain by making this story up. If you think about it, Yates lost everything because of it. And again, he told his co-worker about the story in advance. How could he have foreknowledge of all these things if he wasn't involved? But I agree with the point about giving away the plot. If this was a fake Oswald, then why risk exposing the plot and having it stop? I mean, at a minimum, I would expect high-level conspirators to be able to get their curtain rod story straight, wouldn't you? The story of Ralph Leon Yates is heartbreaking indeed. This was just a hard-working man who was a husband and a father of five, and was just trying to be a nice guy and give a hitchhiker a ride. Never in his wildest dreams did he think this encounter would change his whole life. 
Some years back, I had the privilege of being able to speak to one of Ralph Yates' children, who did not remember much about their father and surely didn't remember anything about this incident. But they did hear stories from their mom on how this incident ruined his life and changed the course of all their lives. These five children grew up without a father, all because he went to the FBI and told them that he believed he picked up Lee Harvey Oswald two days before the assassination and had that incredible story to tell. If Ralph Yates would have kept his mouth shut, he probably would have lived a long life and watched his kids grow up and maybe have grandchildren. This is just another tragedy in the JFK assassination, and there are many more to follow. Next time on The End of Innocence, The JFK Assassination, we start to look at the book Depository Investigation by the Dallas Police. What was found on the sixth floor that day? Was it a Mamluka Carcano rifle that could be tied back to Oswald? Or was it a 7.65 German Mauser? We'll see you next week.